the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Happy December 2nd, 2020. There's a funny thing about this season every year. It's almost always devoid of major news. But not this one, not this time. Whether we want it or not, the age of the media we all live in now is one where supply is greater than the demand by a lot. Sure, we still have questions and concerns, to put it no stronger, about who will be the next president of the United States. But strangely enough, perhaps ironically enough, that is not the news that the saturation of supply seems to provide. To most media, that's what they'd call a wrap. All done, no stories there. It's not the first time this year in the overabundance of news. The bulk of the media puts wraps on other items as well, puts the quietest on stories of seeming interest, be it violent riots, be it the deaths of individuals about whom those riots were the purported impetus, be it stories about international corruption and the Biden family, be it the most relevant of statistics regarding health. One might look back at those collection of stories and think careers could have been made covering them either via deep investigative journalism or just good, plain old reporting. But interest in any of that was never born because the larger import was to quell curiosity in all of it. Why? Those stories wouldn't serve the larger purpose, certainly not in an election year, not when they had a Democrat to elect as president. And it may just have worked. As the Media Research Center found in a large poll of voters in seven swing states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, CNS reports it this way. The voters were asked about their knowledge of eight news stories, all of which the liberal media had downplayed or censored. For instance, despite the Me Too movement and the media coverage it garnered, the survey found that 35.4% of Biden voters were unaware of the serious allegations of sexual assault made by Tara Reid against Joe Biden. If they had known about Tara Reid's sexual assault allegations, 8.9% said they would have changed their vote. This would have flipped all six of the swing states now in the Biden column. Another important story buried by the major media was the Hunter Biden, lap, Hunter Biden laptop story, which showed that Joe Biden was aware of his son's business dealings in the Ukraine and in communist China. 45.1% of Biden voters said they were unaware of that story. The poll found awareness of the Hunter Biden scandal will have led to, would have led to 9.4% of Biden voters to abandon the Democratic candidate, flipping all six of the states as well. Similar results were found when Biden voters were asked about the other six censored stories, Kamala Harris's left-wing policies, positive economic and job reports, Middle East peace deals brokered by Trump, energy independence, and the swift vaccine production as a result of Operation Warp Speed. Looking at all of these issues together, the poll found that a total of 17 percent of Biden's voters said they would have changed their vote if they had been aware of one or more of these stories. 
According to MRC Media Research Center, this would have moved every one of the swing states into Trump's column, some by a huge margin. One wonders what result if the media reported that Donald Trump denounced white supremacy and supremacists at least a dozen times or more, or if they quit asking him to do so when they had him available for an interview, town hall, or debate. In charge. That's what the media had to reclaim and prove this year. I've said before, one of the successes of Donald Trump that so angered the media from the get-go was that he did not defer to them. He did not bow to them. He did not think, as so many other Republicans before him did, that they were in charge. He simply wasn't cowed by the media, and this angered them to no end. It questioned their assumed power, and it shifted norms to where they should have been, but haven't been in a very long time. Or here the people actually rule. The media haven't believed that in a long time, and even by calling them fake or in the business of peddling fake news, it angered them to the point of them claiming he was inspiring violence against them. Now, quick, other than as pointed out here yesterday, how many stories have you seen about Joe Biden's pick for the director of OMB having actually physically assaulted a member of the media? One may say 2020 was the year the media exercised their revenge and Kaiser Soze-like showed Donald Trump and Republicans what true will really was, who truly was in charge. What's of passing interest is how much it worked, how much sway it had, especially given the polling cited above. Many of us thought the dinosaur media was decreasingly relevant, but we missed something in that thought. It is and was relevant to its base, those of liberal bent and mindset and those inclined toward it. We may have not been interested in CNN, but a lot of liberal and middle-of-the-road people were, and boy, was CNN interested in them. Thus, it turns out the first election interference to occur in 2020 was really the media's. Thus, it turns out the first efforts of voter suppression to occur in 2020 was really the media's. Thus, it turns out the first violations of election integrity to occur in 2020 was really the media's. Now we have even more proof, thanks to James O'Keefe and his Veritas project. Before we get into that, quick note, the mainstream media or dinosaur media does not recognize O'Keefe and his employees as media, despite it doing nothing different than the regular media, except better. Anonymous sources? That's the work of CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, not Veritas. Playing surreptitiously recorded audio, even against the First Lady? That's the business of CNN. Editing and fact-checking? That's not the work of CNN, The Washington Post, or The New York Times. It is a Project Veritas. So let's get to it. As Fox News reports... James O'Keefe revealed Tuesday morning that his organization had been secretly recording the network's, CNN Network's, conference calls over the span of two months. Many of the recordings involved CNN President Jeff Zucker. In several released batches of clips, Zucker is heard sounding off against Trump. During a conference call October 9th, he urged his staff to not, quote, normalize the president's erratic behavior as he was recovering from the coronavirus, suggesting the president's medical treatment was affecting his actions normalize the president's behavior? How about just reporting what he said and did? Or not breaking away from his press conferences dealing with the biggest story of the year? O'Keefe also revealed conversations about burying the Hunter Biden laptop story. Jake Tapper went so far as to say, quote, the allegations against Biden's son were 
too disgusting to repeat on air and that the right wing is going crazy. Too disgusting? Good thing that wasn't the standard with Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or Bill Clinton. Of course, Bill Clinton was in his second term, so it didn't matter back then, I suppose. He wasn't running for re-election. But one does have to conclude something perhaps uncomfortable for us. If the media wants to influence an election outcome, it seems it still can. The polling I spoke about may not have received a lot of other attention, but I can guarantee you where it did. Those major media centers from CNN to the New York Times. I was put in mind of all this as I was watching Showtime's documentary series on Ronald Reagan. It's terrible. It features political scientists and other commentators I've never heard of. The whole point to show how terrible a president Ronald Reagan was. I was put in mind of all this as I thought of Donald Trump during the past four years trying to do what what was said Reagan did during his presidency, going over the media and directly to the American people. Well, Showtime is now trying to get Reagan back to set the record unstraight, I guess. It's so paranoid, I don't think it'll work. And poorly produced, but I see the effort. How did Reagan succeed where Trump may not have, though? Well, for one, there was no real Greek chorus of media in the 1980s. CNN was getting its sea legs and MSNBC didn't exist. The New York Times and Washington Post were much more adult back then. Oh, biased, but adult, with well-known and respected pro-Reagan columnists at both places. The Wall Street Journal was a counterweight, too, in a way that it isn't anymore. And, of course, there was no Facebook or Twitter always useful to make truth the first of their casualties. What's the lesson? I'll ask you that question. But I think it starts with lawfare and trying to change the standards of libel and slander. I also think it starts with simply knowing these things. But more than anything, if you go back to that old New York Times v. Sullivan Supreme Court case which started all this absurd special protection the media gets, there's an interesting line in that case. It's this. Constitutional protection of the First Amendment, quote, was fashioned to assure unfettered interchange of ideas for the bringing about of political and social changes desired by the people, close quote. Unfettered, political and social change desired by the people. It did not say, quote, was fashioned to assure the media unfettered power to substitute its judgments for the changes desired by them. But that is what the media now read it as. And until we fix it or irrigate enough new forests, we will remain in the soup. Being a fly in that soup is not enough. Another thought inspired by C.S. Lewis. I think when we think about my pet passion of schools and education, along the way of our thinking and taking them back, we need to think of our fellow citizens, all of them, as our pupils. And if we do, I think Lewis had it right in saying, quote, for every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity, close quote. Worth repeating that. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. Why did he say that? His own answer, quote, By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. Well, he's here. So let's get to work. I'm Seth Leaps, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. A lot to do today. Um, let me just say one more thing, if I can. I mentioned in my monologue, I'm watching the Showtime special on the Reagans. It's really bad. It's a series of, I don't know how many installments. I think I'm on the fourth or fifth, and probably more to come. As I said, political scientists, labeled as political scientists, I've never heard of. Um, the only two people I have heard of in there are Ron Reagan Jr., who has nothing good to say about his dad. I guess Michael was unavailable. He would have had good things to say about his dad. And uh, Kitty Kelly, who's listed as – she's listed not as a gossip writer, not as an unauthorized biographer. She's listed as Nancy Reagan biographer, as if, as, as if she has any credibility whatsoever. But two of these political scientists that they quote, um, things I have to tell you about when we're, we're accused of being cons- conspiratorial or paranoid, this theme keeps coming up in every episode. They hammer it again and again and again that when Ronald Reagan spoke of states' rights, that was code for racism. And when he spoke of welfare— that was code for racism. And when he spoke of tax cuts, that was code for racism. Everything he spoke of was code word for racism. Now, the reason I'm just fascinated by this is because we're the ones who are called conspiratorial, conspiratorial and paranoid. And you've heard me mention once or twice Richard Hofstadter, a professor, famous professor in the 50s and 60s, in his book called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And it was all about the Goldwater campaign and how paranoid Goldwater was, of course. I think he got it exactly wrong, but he said, quote, from his, article, from his book, he used the word paranoid, quote, simply because no other word adequately evokes the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy, close quote, of the American right. That was in 1964. I think it's true of the left today, and I think it's true in this effort to rewrite Reagan. And the reason I think it's pertinent, it's not just about defending Ronald Reagan or, or, um, or, or trying to condemn or criticize this Showtime effort. It's, it's really a rewriting. It's an attempt to rewrite, as I, I said in my monologue, the Reagan um, presidency. And it's amazing. It really is amazing because it is every single interviewee is antagonistic towards Ronald Reagan. Not one person supportive, not one uh, person in this documentary talking about the success of the Reagan administration, which would have been easier to do. You have to go out of your way to actually find critiques. And then in this case, they go out of their mind when they – you, when they say this was code language Ronald Reagan was using as if Ronald Reagan were some kind of bigot or racist, just the way as if Barry Goldwater were. Um, they weren't. These guys were pioneers in civil rights in their um, professional careers and in their personal lives before they ever ran for president. You know the story of Ronald Reagan saving a black woman with a gun? when she was about to be assaulted and battered and maybe worse when he was a radio broadcaster in Iowa. It's a beautiful story. It doesn't make a lot of biographies. 
think we have it in last best hope. In any event, um, in any event, the reason I I am focusing on these things, these particular issues that this Showtime series is focusing on: states' rights, code for racism, welfare, code for racism, tax cuts, code for racism. These are mainstays of constitutional conservatism, pushing back against the welfare state. Um, Yes, a a, a smaller federal government uh, that allows states to be, as a great progressive Louis Brandeis once said, laboratories of democracy. And, of course, tax policy. If they deprive us of talking about any of these things because it's just code for racism, it's going to be pretty soon. It's going to be pretty quickly that we Republicans or conservatives can't talk about anything, can't talk about anything. And I think that is part of the effort on the one hand, because what I can't figure out if possibly the other hand is true or not, which is that these people actually believe this stuff. Do they actually believe this stuff? Do they actually think that when we're talking about welfare policy, we're trying to just gin up the white vote? It can't possibly be true when you stop to consider the point that there are more white people on welfare than others. I mean, if you're condemning welfare or the welfare queen Ronald Reagan spoke about, if you're condemning or criticizing or thinking about um, redressing or uh, reforming welfare, and it's going to anger welfare recipients, theoretically, you're going to be angering more whites than minorities. More whites are on welfare than not. The states' rights issue, what was the racism? Just People say things and then they just kind of move on as if they prove themselves by saying it, and they don't. What is the racism inherent that Ronald Reagan was questing and talking about states' rights? I'll tell you what he was trying to do. He was trying to talk about shrinking the federal government. Shrinking the federal government is what he was trying to do. What is racist about that? Well, what's racist about it, I suppose, to the left, if they actually believe this stuff, is that the federal government – so get me to a Michael Oakeshott quote I'm going to get to you in a little bit. A friend of mine sent me. The federal government is – and the expansion of it is part and parcel of the liberal – not just mindset – but life set. The liberal and left believe, think, and adhere to the idea that the federal government is their right to a job. Bernie spoke to this. Michael Oakeshott spoke to it a lot earlier. Stay tuned. We'll get into this. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour, we do our culture and economy update with the great John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning, Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. Do you play that song at your house, John? Oh, by gosh, by golly. Isn't that great? It's a fantastic song. Pheasants. Yeah, it's It's just a wonderful Has Mrs. Dombrowski made you pheasant? I have not, and I don't have the glass to put it in. <laughs> or under, under, <laughs> uh, under. In, however, I had someone make me a pheasant once. It didn't work out well. No, no sir. Not a fan of the fowl. No. Well, I liked it, but mm. it, um, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, JD, I uh, I wanted to ask you about um, some things on advice, uh, financial sure. advice, if sure. I can. That's this. That's your specialty. But before we do that, yes. Do you remember on this day in history in 1982? Oh my gosh, 1982. Now you're th- I got something in 2001. Heart transplant. Heart transplant. Right. Heart fake f- fake heart artificial heart. Was that the artificial. first artificial yeah. heart? Yeah, well, oh. I think it was the first in our lifetimes. Yeah, 1982 is that dentist Barney Clark. Wow. The Jarvik heart. Remember the, that? Yes. Yeah, the was Jarvik? it Jarvik? I think so. It- I think so. Wow. Yeah. I do recall that, yes. Extended his life something like 100 days. And then I remember, I don't know if you were here. Do you remember there was a televised Open heart surgery or heart transplant surgery here in Phoenix. I think maybe Art Mullen did it. It's ringing just a vague bell. Circa I don't think I could have watched that. 83, 84. Yeah, I'm just not a big 82. fan of, uh, you know, personally of watching that kind of stuff. Okay. I could watch it from a distance. Like, you know, if I was up in the bleachers with Seinfeld and uh, when they dropped the, the junior mint. Yeah. Yeah. That was know. a problem. <laughs> That was a prot. Why they? Yeah, that was the problem. The junior mint. It's oh refreshing, but it's right. not not for surgical uh, procedure. JD. Uh, yes, well, sir. I guess people in in surgery or whatever, when people can't handle their own financial decisions, mm-hmm. yeah. What 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 do you what what do you recommend? What Great do you question. do? Yeah. So yeah, perfect example. Someone goes in yeah, for surgery. Right. At that point in time, they're incapable of making any decision. They right. need someone there to make that decision for them. Right whether it's financial or medical as well, too, Seth. But in our industry, the financial world, of course, if I've got a client, as an example, who has an account, maybe it's a retirement account that we manage for them, and if they become incapacitated and one day I receive a phone call that says, oh, hey, you know, Joe Smith is uh, unable to uh, handle his own affairs anymore, and I'm his spouse or right. I'm his brother or, or sister. Or daughter or son, yeah. Whoever, yeah. and uh, you know what? I need to get some information on this account. The first thing I'm going to say is, as well, um, do you have any legal documents yeah. to show, number right. one, that Joe is, first of all, incapable of handling his own affairs, and then, two, to prove that you have any authority at all to discuss uh, the financial affairs, and that usually would be something called the power of attorney. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's it is an important document to have. I'm not an attorney; it is a legal document. Our firm here does prepare these legal documents for clients, and it is something that can be very, very important for you to have, especially my gosh, with COVID nineteen and all of the challenges that a lot of people and have faced with here. people aging into mm-hmm. uh, infirmity of the mind, right? Yes, yes that's of where really I've seen this really become a headache for the people. mental incapacity yeah. issues yeah. that occur as yeah. we age, of yeah. course, Seth, without question. And one of the things that I I did just recently, I was discussing this with an attorney, one of the attorneys in our office here. Um, which is that uh, we had an institution where a spouse was trying to act on behalf of their sure. their spouse, sure. and that institution, even though they had a financial power of attorney, would not accept it. Yeah. And the reason was is because it, it was what they would consider to be stale dated. It was probably about 16 years old, Oh wow! the power of attorney. Would now not have occurred to me. Yeah. It might have been still a valid power of attorney because it's one spouse giving the other the, the sure. financial power of attorney, but the institution would not accept it uh-huh. without either... Uh, some type of a codicil or update or a something. stamp yeah. of approval yeah. from the attorney who drafted it oh. stating that it's still valid or uh, a newer dated power of attorney. So we had to update their powers of attorney, which, of course, we did here in the office. We we're able to do that for uh, our clients. And uh, but I would 
uh, certainly uh, suggest that those out there who do not have any type of estate planning documents in place, whether it's powers of attorney, a will, a trust. Yeah, they got to talk to you about it. They've yeah, got they, sh- to. they should contact Especially their office. Especially caring for older parents. Mm-hmm. My gosh, it's so important. Yeah, uh, any, whether- any any child who's gone through it without will. Scream to high heavens. Call John Dombrowski. Yeah, yeah, and one of the attorneys in the office here even said, once you turn the legal age of 18, you should have some type of power of attorney in place in case something happens. So reach out to us. Go to our website, grandcanyonplanning.com. You can request an appointment right there. J.D., thank you. Thank you, sir. Securities and Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Feminine Sipican, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Have a great one, buddy. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Yep. Sounds like a song, an ad song for a travel agency a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> hey, Bill, did you see that? Welcome back, by the way. 602-508-0960. Did you see the CDC has revised its um, quarantine guidelines? Yeah. It's not 14 days anymore. I say you're pretty much safe at 7 to 10. And I saw a former CDC director. Do you know how much havoc has been wrecked by that 14-day concept? Do you know how many disturbances, disruptions, tragedies, familial relationship and otherwise have been destroyed by that 14-day concept against what doctors were saying? Doctors were saying, I think you're fine at seven or so, even lower. But the former, so the former, they have a former CDC director on today talking about it. And he says, well, I think we can say seven now. Because when we said 14, we were hoping people would do seven. And they weren't doing 14. So we'd rather people do the full seven than not do what they were told. Do you realize how much havoc is being played with our lives in the name of quote-unquote science that doesn't have any science behind it? Do you realize how much disruption? I think you probably do. And just psychology-wise, you're more likely to get people to do the smaller ask. Yeah, well, that was his point as well, and it turns out it's just as efficacious. Yeah. Unbelievable what they've done to us. What they've done to us. Rick is in uh, Phoenix. Hi, Rick. Hello there, my friend, Seth. How are you, sir? Well, I'm doing well, Seth. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. And I appreciate you taking my call to get today. I've got uh, two things. One is... Uh, Why are men in suits on TV wearing sneakers all the time? Have you noticed it's a, this? It's a fashion statement. It's not a good one. Have you noticed we, this trend? We, we are cool, but we are suave. I don't even think it's comfortable. <laughs> if you've ever worn suits... It's kind of stupid, isn't Well, it? if you wear dress socks with those running shoes or casual, it's not a comfortable feel. Yeah, yeah. It looks so bad. That's not why you called. I just, I just, yeah. What does, does, it, does it have something to do with the fact that uh, dress shoes now run about five hundred dollars? I don't know. Do they? <laughs> I haven't bought any in forever because I hardly wear them. I have, I have a. T- <laughs> I, I will tell you, I have, I have like eight pairs, really nice pairs of dress shoes that I bought probably back in the Bush administration. Right, right. And, you know, like if you me. buy a good pair, they can last a long time. I don't have occasion That's to wear right. very much, so I, I don't know what they cost anymore. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, they're expensive. Well, I maybe. think sneakers are, too. 
Well, sneakers are only a couple of hundred bucks. Okay. So, you know, okay. I don't know. I have no idea. Right. Well, I don't like it. <laughs> I know. It, 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 I'm with you. It, I think it looks pretty. It doesn't even look comfortable anyway. I mean, why bother wearing a nice dress suit right. if you're going to wear right. sneakers? Right, right, Come on. Exactly. You know, that, uh, that just doesn't. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely it, right. It, it takes away no from the nice what, suit or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Counter Counterculture or something like that. Some... So I got one serious thing and yeah. one thing not so serious. Okay. So I'm going to start off with the not so okay. serious. I was talking to my sister in Oklahoma earlier this afternoon. Yeah. And she told me that she had been kind of depressed. So this morning, she glued a coffee mug to the top of her car. Yeah. She said she's been driving around all day, and people have been just waving at her. I think that's really funny. <laughs> Did she really do this? No. Oh, it's a great. I think it's really funny. I think it is too. I like the idea I'm, of it. I'm thinking, but I would think- not just do a coffee mug. I do like, like a, I don't know, uh, huh? A fishbowl. No, I think what's inherently funny, a, I whole, a, a ham, a whole ham maybe, a, a that ham. would be inherently funny. <laughs> or a watermelon. Yeah. Or a, yeah, at least it's a ham. How about a watermelon? Yeah. Or a crown Yeah, a friend roast. of mine said a fishbowl, but I said, no, no, you'd get in trouble yeah, with Yeah, no, you Tita. can't do that. Yeah, yeah, you'd get in trouble with Tita. All right. So, yeah, I thought it was funny, it too. I funny. had a good laugh. I, I just <laughs> People were just waving at me. Yeah, no, it's funny. <laughs> Okay, so Seth, here's the serious yes, sir. thing. I think this kind of ties into your monologue. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I need your help. On this station, uh, earlier today I was listening to the news report, and they were talking about the CDC's new guidelines for COVID, blah, blah, blah. They said, we're urging people not to travel for the holidays. But if you do travel, we urge everyone to be tested before and after you travel, and if you travel, after you travel, for the next seven days, uh, you know, kind of take it easy, uh, don't be going around everywhere, and so forth and so on. So I'm, think, I'm thinking to myself, now, they said they, they're hoping to cut down on infections, but I thought the idea was to get to herd immunity and so we want to allow infections to increase, but they're saying get tested. And why, why be tested before and why be tested after? I, I just don't understand all of this befuddlement that they're throwing out there at us. So I have to uh, announce my limits in understanding. I, I understand the concept. I don't understand fully enough to speak smartly about the notion of herd immunity. I understand what, what we're trying to achieve with it and, and the benefits of it. I, I, don't underst- I, I don't know enough to talk smartly about it in regard to what policies we should do and engage in. I do remember Anthony Fauci saying about the schools that that's the first place to start in reopening them. Um, yeah, after, yeah. At, at, you know, contra, every, contra almost every other state that closed them, every state that closed them. Um, and the paranoia with states now that are, you know, telling students they can't come back to school if their child just has the sniffles or a cold for 14 days. It's an amazing, um, um, amazing violation of science, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I don't know enough about that. 
here's what I've been paying attention to on the travel thing. Uh, it's a do as I say, not do as I do ethic. Right. We are seeing more and more of these public officials taking these quiet trips while they tell their subjects not to travel for the holidays. Have you seen the latest one? It's Austin Mayor Steve Adler, mayor of Austin, Texas. No, I didn't he hear He puts about out it. a video. He puts out a video, you know, on, on Facebook and YouTube or whatever, saying, yeah. quote, stay home if you can. This is not the time to relax. Okay? He puts that out on Facebook in a video. So, you know, he's, he's proof of life, I suppose. Wow. You know what he didn't tell you? He was doing it from his timeshare in Cabo San Lucas. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. More and more of this. And it's, so it's, it's not so much the hypocrisy, as they say. I credit Adam Carolla with this point. It's not the hypocrisy. It's that they don't believe what they're saying. Because if they did, they wouldn't be going to the restaurants. They wouldn't be going to French Laundry. They wouldn't be traveling while they're telling you not to. Flying on a private jet, by the way, with eight family members. Mayor of Austin, Steve Adler. You just can't believe these guys anymore. They don't believe what they're telling you. Why should we believe them? Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Andy McCarthy's going to join us at the top of the next hour to walk us through a bunch of legal stuff. Um, he has a good way of making it understandable, apprehensible. I, I lo- he's a great teacher because he's, he's very skilled at taking complex things and boiling them down um, for, um, for uh, non-lawyers or people who haven't practiced in forever. And um, he's going to talk to us about the state challenges, the challenges in the various states on election fraud. He's going to talk to us about what this William Barr appoint, um, announcement that he's going to name Mr. Durham the um, special counsel, uh, what that's going to mean. So stay tuned for Andy McCarthy on all of this. Um, also, I wanted to share this with you. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and trying to get his opinion, a really smart guy, about how he um, how he saw the Arizona election process here. And he says one of the smartest people around is Blake Masters. If you don't know who Blake Masters is, follow him at BG Masters on Twitter. He's the COO of uh, Teal Capital. He says he has a really good way of breaking down the issue and thinking about it. I think he did. I looked it up. He says Arizona isn't Philadelphia, but we do use Dominion voting machines. It's good to be skeptical, scientific about our procedures, especially if your instinct is to say they are perfect. Easy improvement, though. Get rid of proprietary election software. Vote counting is not a technical problem. We've known how to do it for centuries. Counting should be open, transparent, prompt, and public. All obvious points, yet almost no jurisdiction delivers on them. But there's no evidence that the system is insecure, we're told. Okay, half the country or more isn't buying that. First, there's a lot of evidence, also noise, just no clear proof of outcome changing fraud yet. Evidence is not proof. But, of course, ballots are secret. Once they're in the system, it's blind faith. Why not have airtight election procedures immune to all challenge like Taiwan? Why do we prefer to have systems that look dodgy? Some of the chaos is organic, but it's not totally random. 
not after four years of insane anti-Trump propaganda of a caliber to justify much worse. So it's unfortunate, but people are right to mistrust the system here in Arizona and elsewhere where fraud is or looks possible. Public trust evaporates. Election security, election security should should be the top priority for conservatives going forward. And we're going to figure out how to win big and make cheating impossible. That is a smart way of looking at it. Well done, Blake. Andy McCarthy coming right up.